About 15 years ago, my wife and I were thinking about buying a new car, and we didn't want to rush it. We wanted to take our time, and we went to one of the big-name local dealerships just to look around and get a feel for what the, the current models look like. And a young salesman came up to us. I'm guessing he was 23, 24. He didn't look any older than that. And I told him, you're probably wasting your time talking to us, so don't invest too much in us. We're really just trying to get an idea tonight. We're not gonna, we're not gonna buy anything tonight. And he said, I understand. He said, but um, could I talk to you for a minute? I thought, well, okay, sure. So he went into a little conference room uh, and he said, Mr. Landrum, he said, if I make you the deal of the week, do you promise right now you'll commit tonight to accepting it? And I kind of laughed. I said, no, that's exactly what I said to you in the showroom. I'm not doing that. <laughs> I was just trying to look around. And he, he tried to keep talking, but I, as politely as I could, I got up and left the conference room. And uh, within a few minutes, another 23-year-old came up to me, a different one. And he said, Mr. Landrum, I heard what just happened. He said, that, did, that didn't go well. He said, uh, he said, I'd like to start over. He said, I'm really sorry. That's just not how we normally handle things. And I said, okay, fine, but we really are just looking. And he said, that's great. He said, but let me just ask you a question. And I said, well, what's that? And he said, if I made you the deal of the week, will you tell me right now that you'll buy tonight? <laughs> and I just laughed even harder. This must have been something they had talked excitedly about that morning as a great new sales trick or something. And maybe somebody had scored with it within the last few weeks and was bragging about it or something. So I said no. <laughs> and by this time, it was obvious we weren't going to be able to just look around. And so Martha and I were in the parking lot leaving. And a third 24-year-old looking young man came out into the parking lot. And he said, are you John Landrum? And I said, yes, because I'd give my name to the people inside back when I still trusted them. And this, this third 24-year-old said, uh, he said, I just want to apologize for what happened. He said, I'm the, I'm the night manager. He said, that's just not how we do things. He said, can I ask you a question? <laughs> and I said, no, and we left. Now, I tell that story because it sort of gave me a firsthand reminder of why people take a dim view of sales professionals and why a lot of people would consider it beneath their dignity to go into the sales profession. Now compare that situation to the place where we found ourselves about uh, 18 years ago when we were penetrating the tire making industry the big tire makers of the world. And we had solved some very big problems for these tire makers in the mixing area of their plant. That's the, the beginning of the tire plant where they're just trying to compound the rubber and create the ideal mixes for the various components that they're gonna later extrude and then put into the tires. And it's a very abusive environment. You have hot, sticky rubber and heavy bales of it coming down onto a conveyor belt and they were using either wire mesh belts or the sort of belts that you see in grocery stores, and neither of those could take that sort of abuse very well. They were very high maintenance with a lot of unscheduled downtime. And our system, which is inherently much lower maintenance, it's, it can withstand a lot more abuse, and it's a lot easier to repair if you need to repair it. 
was just proving in some of those applications to extend the belt life. Uh, it had been as short as two weeks sometimes and then needing maintenance or just breaking and causing downtime on the one hand and our belting which could last multiples of that time and eliminate that kind of downtime. And yet after you saw some of those early installs, you thought, well, why isn't the rest of the mill room converting? Because it's obviously that valuable to the customer. And we would learn that the maintenance managers who had been living with those problems and saw the benefits, they had limited budgets to make more of those retrofits in real time. So the only way we could get that unstuck was to go to the people who had the authority over the budget to redirect money to authorize more retrofits. And fortunately, those same people, the production managers and plant managers, were also very much incentivized to reduce downtime. That's really how they're measured. And so we started creating very compelling emails and voicemails and messages for those people that made it clear that we could save based on their own ways of accounting and based on the evidence in their own companies that we could save them in as much as half a million dollars a year in downtime and maintenance by doing these retrofits with very quick paybacks. And so we started doing that sort of a sales effort instead to the plant managers and the production managers. And that went very, very well. We got very high return rates. We got sponsorship at the executive level and started really accelerating our throughput, our commercial throughput, our ability to get those retrofits sponsored and converted. So as these accelerated, we could actually document the savings we were bringing to these companies. And these are, these are really big numbers. Imagine half a million dollars in a single plant annually every year by changing that sort of status quo. That's a big demonstrable value with quick paybacks. And it was obviously raising our revenue numbers. So that was a real win for us. Now, it was counterintuitive because the, when, when you talk to people in the tire industry, they would say that people uh, at the plant manager level don't talk to component suppliers. But the answer to that, the reason for that is, yeah, but most component suppliers aren't selling you a half a million dollars a year reduction in downtime and maintenance. So you've got to be focused on what's the value you're selling, not what's the thing you're selling. And when you have compelling value like that, you can talk to senior executives because that's how they're motivated. And the funny thing is when we, when we took that outside the United States, we'd go to England, for example, to an English tire plant. And we were told that the plant managers in England don't talk to component suppliers and we tried it anyway and lo and behold they do talk to component suppliers if you are actually selling value and so forth in uh, Germany or Brazil or China that when you sell that kind of a reduction in maintenance or downtime and those kinds of documentable savings you get the attention of senior executives and you can really accelerate sales. Now think about the cultural implications where you're selling that sort of value. So imagine a sales professional who's doing that sort of selling, what sort of attraction that sort of career might have. So just think about that for a minute and imagine you're a person that we were trying to recruit to come join our sales force and compare that sort of a career. Don't you imagine you might be able to do that if it were your job to go into those plants with a message like that and you're not trying to trick anybody you're actually just an aggressive teller of the truth and genuinely helping them meet their own goals more effectively than other ways they could spend their time. Think of the value add and think of the career implications for attracting interesting people into the sales force. Think of the conversations that some companies have where they're almost at war with their sales force because you hear things like, 
well, salesmen are just that way. Salesmen are always going to be this or that. And when you're doing honest value selling, high impact, honest value selling, then your sales force is not differentiated from the rest of your organizational culture where you're preaching these values. And compare that, for example, to the example of Wells Fargo, which is one of those iconic brands that I grew up reading about as an example of an amazing corporate culture. And think of the problems Wells Fargo has had over the last few years based on this apparent practice of incentivizing their commercial professionals to create customer accounts and sell not valuable things, but just profit-making things at the expense of the customer. And look at the poisoning of their brand that has flowed from that. Imagine you have sales management who's not saying, get these numbers at all costs and incentivizing bad behaviors that way, and instead saying, if we believe in this value, let's make sure that these value messages are being clearly articulated and delivered to the senior executives. Just a big difference in terms of everything. Think of the implications if you're on the customer side. Can you imagine a sales professional being a welcome guest in your office because of the delivery of this sort of value? Think about the company ownership that's employing the sales professional and thinking about the sort of feedback loops you can get when you say, why is this solution not moving? And it's an honest discussion of value. There's a clarity there. There's a prevention of selling things that aren't going to sell. There's an elimination of waste, which ultimately leads to long-term, much higher profits. And then think about which type of sales professional do you think goes home with more dignity? Thank you.